Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Welcome to part two of the NeuroPodCase on motor neuron disease with Dr. Robert Edis. In this part, we resume the case of the 65-year-old female who presented with a four-week history of progressive right leg weakness who on examination was found to have upper and lower motor neuron signs in her right leg, suggested of probable MND. A month later, she is admitted to hospital with a pneumonia. There has been a recent deterioration in swallowing and she has been coughing during her meals. Her voice is now very quiet and she has started to drool. In addition to the previous examination findings, she has now developed bulbous speech with tongue fasciculations and a brisk jaw jerk. She also has developed more widespread lymph fasciculations, now visible in her deltoids, biceps and quadriceps bilaterally. Yes, well, it's, it's now clear that she has declared herself, and that this is clinically definite uh, motor neuron disease, and she is in the ALS phenotype, which has um, implications for prognosis. And she's demonstrating that by clear progression uh, over a month. And so this is a, a relatively frightening uh, rate of progression that she's showing and so that this can now be declared and a recommendation that she go on the only treatment so far that's been shown to be able to slow the disease a little um, and uh, in our current motor neuron disease clinic in Perth uh, the 66 patients or so that I'm looking after about 80% of them uh, are on Riazole because it's usually well tolerated um, some people feel more fatigued or they have abdominal symptoms um, and bowel symptoms on, on the uh, medication or they feel that the fact that it only prolongs life from three to six months or so compared to the control groups when it was uh, in, in the trials of treatment feel that it's not worth taking but about 80% of people would be on that medication. The most important thing now is to put them in touch with the Motor Neuron Disease Association to get um, an advisor as a, as a uh, constant um, person to refer to and to give emotional and, and uh, other information and support throughout the disease for the patient and family. Uh, and we have a very strong association here in, in Western Australia, as I'm, I'm sure there is in the UK as well. And to have the person under care of a multidisciplinary team uh, where we can call on uh, people with expert knowledge and interest in the disease, uh, in, in the speech pathologist and dietitian, for instance, if there's a problem with swallowing uh, and, um, and dietary support, uh, uh, have initial respiratory assessment and regular review through respiratory uh, physician team and uh, to keep uh, and to have a, a connection with community nursing and to also have an association with the research arm of, of the clinic where it may be possible to offer participation in uh, one of a number of research uh, trials at the moment uh, where most people are very keen to participate in that and to advise against um, all the information they're going to be exposed to with regard to stem cell therapies or travel overseas to participate in other therapies where it can be very expensive and where they're unproven and where 
there's been no particular benefit uh, achieved uh, from these alternative treatments. And then finally, uh, our connection with um, hospital and community palliative care can be very important. And to really get to know the person with regular review and their family so that those discussions about wishes of end of life, for instance, uh, can be had over a period of time rather than just with one interview. So the idea is to, to give informed support, to get the person to participate, be an active participant in making decisions as we go along as to particular treatments, whether they be involved in trials, uh, whether they wish to progress to gastrostomy support if needed, or um, non-invasive ventilation support, um, and where these options can be discussed over time, and then um, people can make their mind up whether they want to participate or not. With regard to end-of-life care, we have now passed in Western Australia a voluntary assisted dying legislation, which will be active from July of 2021, where people who are within the last year of life of motor neuron disease will have an option to either take medication to terminate their life themselves or to have a physician deliver it uh, to them. And so uh, this is now an option that a number of our patients have been very insistent on in keeping control of their lives, leading unfortunately to a number of them to, to uh, suicide uh, because they did not wish to go through what they considered the indignity of progression of the disease. So the multidisciplinary team here is, is very, very important and you, we need involvement with the you know, gastroenterologists yes. regarding feeding nutrition and that um, feeding tubes should be offered to the patients, but it really it's the patient's choice about whether they want, want to pursue that avenue or yes. not. Um, and then the respiratory teams are vitally important to provide perhaps non-invasive ventilation. In your experience, do they tend to want those things? Uh, most people do, and we, we, we certainly explain the involvement of, of PEGs or radiologically inserted gastrostomy if, if there's too much respiratory impairment to tolerate having a PEG procedure as being predominantly symptom relief so that when people have severe dysphagia or, or leading towards severe dysphagia and weight loss, then the struggle to eat, uh, prolonged eating times, the risk of aspiration and choking, the discomfort of, of all of that, we can relieve that by, by the use of um, um, tube feeding. And, and where tube feeding does not preclude uh, oral feeding, so there can be a mixture of both, and many people will have a, a peg relatively early, just deal with um, fluid intake and some um, supplemental nutrition but then still be able to eat at the same time and so it's a sensible option and also the fact that it can be withdrawn at any time so there's no need for any medical legal intervention or whatever to decide to stop um, tube feeding that's up to the, the patient it's considered uh, a medical intervention that the patient has control over um, and usually well tolerated although pigs and rigs have their own problems um, in terms of tube blockages or infection and things like that. But again, with, with proper instruction, with community nursing support, uh, those complications can be, can be minimised. And with uh, appropriate follow-up and appropriate access to um, knowledgeable people who put the tubes in, 
um, we can minimise the amount of emergency department presentations. With regard to non-invasive ventilation, it's become more and more effective. And again, symptom relief, so if people hypoventilate initially during sleep, which is usually the initial indication of a problem, uh, then they may be waking, feeling tired or with headaches or lethargy. And where good uh, non-invasive ventilation, particularly during sleep at the initial stages, can revitalise the person. Similarly, when they begin to have problems like um, shortness of breath during bathing in the morning or something, the use of uh, NIV immediately afterwards for a, a short period of recuperation or at other intervals during the day may again give uh, extra energy uh, to the person. Occasionally you do get people who become totally dependent on NIV. It's very effective if well tolerated, although only about 20 to 30 percent of our patients actually end up on non-invasive ventilation because uh, they either don't want it or don't tolerate it or don't need it. But we do occasionally get people who become 24-hour dependent on, on the ventilation which can keep them going for months up to in some cases up to several years but there comes a point where people uh, can decide that they no longer want to persist with the ventilation that their life quality of life has deteriorated to a point with the rest of the disease where they've become very dependent and decided that they don't wish to go on again it can be withdrawn uh, in the home with the patient's choice of, of when this is to be done by palliative care under sedation uh, and where death will occur at home with managing this condition there's a huge amount of um, you know shared decision making but really the, it's about the patient and and what they want and what they feel is suitable for them um, which can be quite different from other areas of medicine absolutely and and I try and give people ownership and more understanding of the disease and of course it People vary. I mean, one of one of the some people go into denial and 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 um, wish to know the minimal amount about the disease. Others become very intimately involved. But usually, a, a, a good healthy relationship can be established, particularly with the personal intervention of the Motor Neuron Disease Association advisors, who become friends of the person and the family in most cases, and and uh, are available on email or or by phone call as are uh, all the other members of, of our team, to the patient. And so this, this close connection established over a period of a year to years uh, is very helpful uh, in giving great support to the patients, which they very much appreciate. So we, we have regular clinic reviews, two to three monthly, uh, as required, and are able to intervene um, in between clinic appointments some clinics will have respiratory or other reviews on the same day, but we tend to have them at all uh, other times, where again the respiratory review will be, be often three to six to four monthly. The clinic letters we will send to the, the patient as well and tell them that they must keep their own documentation and that they must take that to an emergency department if they need to go into an emergency department to to able to inform uh, the doctors or if they're seen by a health professional at home again they can show an up-to-date clinic letter as to uh, the problem list and the plan for the patient and we found that uh, by involving the patient as much as we can in, in the management and the understanding of the disease 
then uh, this has been um, the most successful way for the patient to manage the disease and to interact with the health system. And so well, one of the most challenging things is to break bad news to patients with uh, motor neuron disease, particularly for neurologists, but even sometimes general physicians might find that they have to do to do that. Um, have you got a particular format that you might use to help you? The, the diagnosis of motor neuron disease and the telling of the diagnosis of motor neuron disease uh, from neurologist's perspective is one of the most difficult things that one can do, particularly if the person is not suspecting the diagnosis. And so the giving of bad news, points of how one should give bad news with regard to brain tumour, multiple sclerosis, but particularly motor neuron disease, is something that we should pay attention to because the patients always remember the way in which the diagnosis was delivered. And it can be delivered often over uh, several sessions where one can indicate that there's a degree of seriousness of the problem that they're facing but further investigation needs to be done and then so I, I would recommend with regard to to delivery of bad news that one uh, reads um, the the articles on how to deliver bad news and to to be as empathetic as possible the um, spikes protocol the acronym is a good way to try and remember this. And so uh, this involves um, initially S for setup, so that one shouldn't really deliver the diagnosis on a busy ward round or in an open forum. You should really make time uh, for the diagnosis to be delivered in, in a private setting, um, never to the patient alone, never on the telephone, and where you, there should be a significant other person to, to support them at the time of diagnosis so that uh, you've got time, you're not to be interrupted. Uh, and in, in one review about the, the effectiveness of delivering diagnosis that, that patients appreciated, the, the one measure that they commented on was the time and privacy given. So the neurologist who took half an hour or so in that discussion to answer all of the, to deliver the information, to discuss with the patient and um, to give the person time was the most appreciated. So don't expect you can give the diagnosis in five minutes and then rush off on a ward round somewhere. Um, the patients will very much resent this and will remember it forever and it's not a kind or empathetic way to deliver the information. Perception is the other thing is to find out whether the patient has any suspicion of whether um, this is a serious or life-threatening or, or a diagnosis of uh, a serious diagnosis where, again, if they have no perception that this is serious, then you'll have to tread much more carefully and perhaps uh, deliver the diagnosis over two sessions, um, preparing them for the seriousness of, of, the, of the diagnosis and making sure that they've got an appropriate support and making sure that you've got some follow-up plan as to as to how you're going to support the person with perhaps uh, another interview soon after the initial declaration so that once the shock is over, then one can discuss all of the implications and the support that's available to them. So uh, if the person always already suspects or knows someone with motor neuron disease, then it's much more important to... Uh, much easier, I guess, to deliver that diagnosis and to temper it with, with the discussion about phenotypes and the need for further observation to get a good three to six month period of 
seeing how well they progress or not because once the diagnosis is delivered, almost invariably the next question is how long have I got to live? And that's a very difficult uh, thing to deliver beyond um, broad strokes and where again the variation uh, from two to five years or so in ALS or six, six, nine months to five years of ALS uh, phenotype uh, can only be determined on further follow-up. Um, and then uh, invitation. Some people want to know everything. Other people want to know the minimum amount of information. Don't assume that everyone's the same. So again, um, you might say to the person, how much do you want to really know about this or discuss this at this time? And the person might say, well, look, I, I, I really can't cope with any much more information at this stage. I'd like to perhaps discuss it over time or discuss it in another interview. And then you would terminate the interview and make that appointment for, uh, for the further discussion. Um, knowledge about if they, they wish to know more about it, then you tell them your perspective and you give them reliable information sources, which are usually these days with regard to MND, the Motor Neuron Disease Association websites, uh, the reliable uh, sources of information. Because people will then Google and find all sorts of information all over the place. And so I think giving uh, direction to, to appropriate pamphlets from the Motor Neuron Disease Association or other reliable information sources um, is a responsibility that we have. And then dealing with the emotion. So um, I recall one patient who I told the diagnosis to and she let out a shriek and fell off the chair onto the, onto the consulting room floor because she knew what the implication was because her neighbour had, had motor neuron disease and she was aged 38 with two young children and she had seen the progression of the disease and knew what she was in for. So, um, you know, uh, that was a very difficult situation where her husband and I had to deal with that. Um, but, you know, uh, distress, uh, uh, crying, um, the need for uh, uh, a sympathetic dealing with that situation if it arises is something that one has to be prepared for and to give a sense of, 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 uh, of empathy. And then finally, the strategy so out of the spikes protocol, the strategy, the clear indication that there is a strategy. So the, the worst thing one can say is um, there's nothing we can do or there's no particular treatments any good because uh, that's not true, that the, the treatments that we've, we have now got with regard to reutech, with regard to the effective mass ventilation if necessary, with timely gastrostomy, with other supports, physiotherapy, exercise, etc., can unequivocally prolong life compared to doing nothing uh, beyond just minimal supportive treatment uh, for eight months or so or more. Um, and, so that there, and, and then there is hope, and there's always hope, and particularly with the millions of dollars that are being now poured into, into research uh, in the different forms of motor neuron disease which are, are likely to lead to some more effective treatments. So uh, I think in terms of delivery of diagnosis, from the neurologist's point of view, we, we, want, to, we want to just uh, confirm and diagnose we've got MND, but it's more broad than that. The, the implications of us caring for people, 
and, and preparing them for uh, management of the disease in whatever condition we're diagnosing now is, is a most important role for all of us. Thank you very much, Dr. Edis, for all your time today and, and discussing this very um, complicated, very interesting condition. Okay, well, thanks, Josie. All the best. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.